Hello, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. So today we're talking to Claren Pesch, and she's an architect who's working to help clinicians in, in ways that are kind of behind the curtain. They're, they're invisible to us. Claren found us completely organically. She contacted us essentially through the internet. Um, she is very interested in the way that the healthcare built environment shapes how we work and how we reset from work and how the, the, the barriers that the built environment create uh, can make work easier or harder. Yeah, and this was a fascinating conversation, so I think we should just get to it. Right. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, Claire Ann. Um, I guess we should start today by uh, giving a little introduction. Could you give our guests a quick introduction of who you are and how you uh, how you got to know about moral injury? Certainly. Um, thank you both for having me today. Um, I'm a senior interior designer at Array Architects. Um, so, what does that mean to all of you? Um, I basically aid in aspects related to planning and designing healthcare spaces all the way to making sure that it's built the way that it's planned. Um, it's actually a pretty unique story of, of how I came across um, the topic of moral injury. Um, so specifically, a colleague who I was collaborating with at the time knew that I was starting to map ways in which the built environment could address healthcare workforce issues. Burnout was one of them. Um, she forwarded your stat news article to me, and I had actually never heard the term applied to healthcare. Um, early on, you stated that without understanding the critical difference between burnout and moral injury, the wounds will never heal and physicians and patients alike will continue to suffer the consequences. That was really powerful to me. Um, it also begged the question, what could I be missing? Um, you see in healthcare, burnout was and still likely is a prime predictor for a whole host of issues such as absenteeism, injury, presenteeism, early exits, um, all problems that other industries, um, such as corporate America and professional athletics, had actually set out to solve and did so rather successfully, among other things, by taking care of their people with the built environment. Research started to prove what many of us designers had known all along and were trying to say, that the built environment influences well-being and individual and group performance and productivity. We were building a case at that point for why the same applies to healthcare. So if the work workforce was battling moral injury, I needed to understand if and how it would change the ways we approached the built environment. So I naturally reached out to info at moralinjury.healthcare. <laughs> and within a couple of hours, um, lo and behold, uh, I think about a year ago, it was February 3rd, um, I had a voicemail from Wendy in my inbox, um, and we chatted that afternoon and determined that our respective missions were pretty well aligned, and uh, you guys let me bug you from then on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and what's really interesting about this is when we first started talking, we were talking about meeting for a cup of coffee, getting together for lunch, because it was all before COVID was a really big deal. Exactly. So um, our, our work changed pretty drastically, pretty quickly. Yes. Yes. So um, one of the interesting things is we've been talking a lot about, as you 
set it up about how the built environment has been adapted in other industries to help the workforce perform better. Yep. And that's that's one of your goals in healthcare. But I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about what you're hoping to do with that and how you think it could benefit the healthcare workforce sort of day to day. So if we start to approach the built environment differently um, in healthcare, we can start to address some of those physiological burdens um, that clinicians may or may not know are actually there. Um, so what does this translate into? Um, if we start to think about how um, daylight, for example, um, more often than not, staff spaces are banished to the interior or the, sometimes the basement of, of healthcare spaces. Um, if we start to look at placing staff in areas that are properly daylit, um, especially considering workers who are doing shift work, and providing them either access to daylight or lighting, sy lighting systems that mimic the natural processes, we actually create an opportunity to regulate sleep and wake cycles. Um, so clinicians aren't going to struggle as much as they might otherwise to stay awake during their daytime or their nighttime shift. We're also going to potentially send clinicians home in a better state to actually fall asleep after their shift, which is so powerful. I mean, if you look at the science here, which I think is one of the most freeing things, um, especially for health systems to consider when thinking about changing the aspect of design um, in the healthcare space, is that there's a lot of fighting and, and negotiating between how do you navigate personal preferences? How do you navigate stakeholders' opinions? How do you navigate brand? All of those things. If we start to return to the human physiology and the science of it all, um, you're really, that's your framework. It, it, and you're, you're reducing the need for staff to opt in. I think one of the biggest things is we have fallen into this aspect, and this is one of the bad things that we've taken from other industries, is we've put respite spaces um, in the healthcare sphere. And we, we've placed them wherever we can. Um, and we say, staff, go there and, and take a break. Um, but the operations and the processes haven't bolstered that, haven't, haven't supplied for that to take place. So that's things that I shouldn't be spending a health system's money on. I should be focused on providing that respite in the immediate work zones. And, and I talk a little bit about respite. What does that mean? Um, it, it's actually providing restoration in the midst of a, of a crisis or, or even just a, a normal working day. Um, that can mean natural motifs. It can mean uh, approaching wood grains, open wood grains, and tones that are different than what you traditionally see in healthcare workspaces. So, Claren, can you uh, talk us through the process of designing and building um, space in general, but perhaps specifically healthcare workspace? Um, what are the things you consider primarily, and, and who's involved in that? What are the what are the stakeholders? Who are the stakeholders? So, you get the traditional who, what, where when you start a project. Um, you're also considering the program 
uh, outlining the user's needs, um, whether or not you'll be engaged as a planner and a designer to help develop them. Um, sometimes we're given a program or sometimes we're helping to create it. Um, are you working within existing conditions or is it totally new? Those are two very, very disparate um, project types and they require very different thought process. Um, in addition to that, you have to layer in all of the um, code implications. So thinking about building life safety code and some of you may or may not be familiar with the Facilities Guidelines Institute which regulates many of the planning and design considerations uh, for healthcare specifically. Um, there's usually a lot of consultants that you're rallying at the start of a project. Um, you're also trying to think of, are there going to be any process improvements? Um, I think a lot of folks here design and they don't necessarily realize that there's operational improvements that go along with how we design. Um, they actually work really closely together. We also try to figure out um, what roadblocks are there. Then when you're considering who's at the table um, from a stakeholder standpoint, it is the C-suite, it is the um, facilities and planning department within the specific health um, system separate from, from myself as a, as a separate entity. Um, we're also meeting with um, usually the heads of departments um, and then their lead uh, doctors or nurses. Um, and in addition to that, you have the entire suite of support services. So you're meeting with supply chain, you're meeting with IT and infrastructure, you're meeting with security, um, and you're trying to bring everybody to the table to formulate this coalition. And everybody has very, very different ideas of what should be happening. Um, so something that we try and do very early on is we try and form a coalition and get people on board for specific um, organizational, strategic, and financial goals for the project that we can return to and kind of keep everybody honest throughout the process. That sounds like a really confusing and complicated layer cake <laughs> yes. of of trying to fit together regulations and policy and operations. And I can imagine that it is really easy to kind of lose track of what the experience might be of the frontline clinician when you're also thinking about how transportation needs to use, to use the space or security wants the space set up or you know, any number of things, what regulations allow, what the code allows. Yep. So it's understandable that um, it hasn't been on the forefront. Right. That it needs to be an intentional activity to put that on the forefront of people's minds. It does. And, and you do need everybody to be made aware of it. And as a designer, I try and function as a steward of that, um, as a steward of all of the users of the space. And when it when you think about it, the prime users of the space are the clinician. And I think a very unfortunate thing that I see happen is, um, you know, everyone's happy when you're when you're starting a res renovation. Everybody's excited until you're over budget. Everybody's like, this is great. 
we can do this. This is awesome. Thank you for bringing this to us. Um, and almost always these conversations start to boil down to the guts for the building to function. Um, I think it's, it's something that we all negotiate, um, probably in our own homes. Nobody wants to replace the roof. Nobody wants to replace the heating and ventilation systems. Um, these, you know, need to take precedent. They're pretty important in the healthcare built environment. So I'm not going to, you know, put that down. But when what ends up happening is they take a lot of resources. And when you come down to the wire while you're developing the design and you're sort of getting into that phase right before you move on into construction, and there's lots of budget checks throughout the process, um, almost always, I've seen it so many times, all the stakeholders, even the clinicians, the head docs, the head nurses, they agree at the end that, yeah, we need to devote resources to the patient-facing spaces. It's beautiful and it's like super commendable to see how just effortlessly folks all come to this consensus. Um, but, and this by no means means that staff lose everything. That's that's not what this is, but it really signals the need for this paradigm shift um, and a reconciliation of what is actually needed to make these spaces function and to really repair this very broken relationship, one with human beings in the built environment, but clinicians in the built environment who are dealing with these really, really demanding um, workloads. So, Clarin, what are the things that um, have been forgotten over the last uh, handful of years? Um, of course, there are some some absolute mandates when you're building a building, right? There have got to be issues of cleanliness and safety and fire safety and space and things like that. But what are the things that you've been thinking about that are um, the forgotten things, the things that make these spaces better um, that we haven't been thinking about? Great question. Um, I would say that we really need to take into consideration the way that people respond to certain built elements. Um, healthcare is hard to navigate with respect to, like, if we take space allocation. Um, I think a very unique thing, if we go back to the Facilities Guidelines Institute, that regulates a lot of the spatial requirements for various departments and, and typologies within healthcare. There's nothing in there that stipulates a minimum amount of workspace for staff. So we get into this very ambiguous uh, dialogue of what is appropriate or what is adequate. Um, and I think that that really sort of begs the question if we have minimum requirements on patient rooms, on supply closets, um, why aren't we doing the same for staff workspaces? Um, in addition to that, I think lighting and acoustics are two big things that are hard to navigate, but are pretty quickly pushed aside. Lighting, for example, has always just been about what you can see. So we've come a long way with respect to 
lighting and medication rooms to help reduce error rate and, and so on and so forth so that you can see what you're doing. But we haven't taken into account what those increases in visibility are actually doing to our biological systems and the signals that they're providing clinicians all throughout the day and day after day. Um, we didn't evolve as, as rapidly, I think, as some people hoped um, with respect to how we interact with the built environment. We still have a lot of those old processes running and those old tapes running that say, actually, with this much amount of blue light, you should, you should stay awake and you're going to be awake for the next, you know, 10 hours. Um, now, that's great when you're working in a healthcare environment. That's, we want everybody to be awake. That's perfect. Um, but then what ends up happening is you can't fall asleep at the end of your shift. So you start to lose sleep and that affects the next day that you go into work. So what I hear you talking about a lot is, is things that affect uh, people being able to do their job as, as well as they want to be able to do their job or optimally. Um, my question is that prior to talking to us, you hadn't heard about the term moral injury. Um, but I'm guessing that you understood the concept of moral injury, even if you didn't have the words to explain it. Um, was moral injury or clinician distress or burnout something that was talked about in the area of the built environment? So moral injury explicitly... No. Um, clinician distress and burnout. I sort of alluded to this a little bit at the at the onset that I was at the time working on mapping built environment aspects that could try and troubleshoot some of that. Burnout being a symptom of trying to do your job and time and time again, hitting all of these um, environmental roadblocks. Um, but the interesting thing is that a lot of designers, we talk about burnout, whether you're a healthcare designer or not. Um, it's pretty prevalent in the built environment industry. And yet no one has ever approached me to design a space to reduce burnout. Really? <laughs> yeah. No. Wow. Uh, a lot of folks still think it's an operational issue, not environmental. And I mean, I get it. Like we, we haven't, we haven't been there for those conversations. Um, to top it all off, um, I have asked for information that tracks to burnout, such as absenteeism or attrition, to sort of aid in that design process to be able to map, okay, does the environment that I'm creating help solve for some of these things. And it's, it's an uncomfortable conversation. And it's something that, I mean, I respect healthcare systems are like, wait, that's super sensitive information. And you're a designer. Why am I going to provide you with that? Um, but if we back out of it, burnout, which I now know, thanks to you guys as a symptom it's it's wholly this this massive barrier and moral injury is a barrier to organizations achieving their goals. So it sounds like what you're trying to do is is to without people really maybe even realizing it you want to take down some of the physiological barriers to people being able to do their jobs more easily. Absolutely. And my hope is with that 
that we can actually free up more dollars and resources to be allocated elsewhere. If we consider that the built environment affects well-being and well-being affects individuals' performance and productivity, we have this tool that can start to change the conversation and we can start to think about what would these productivity increases do for the healthcare industry? And what would it do to, to create environments that empower people and improve their level of engagement? And, you know, I think it's, it, it's interesting. There's actually a, a study that reviewed staff. This is a corporate study, to be clear. Again, we're really lacking the healthcare-specific data. But what's unique about this is they took an office environment and they chopped it up into thirds. And one group had a vegetated view outside. One group had a view of a brick wall. And one had no view at all. And what they found between the first and the last group was that the ones with the vegetated view took less sick days. So as long as you can see trees and plants, you're going to do better. <laughs> well, it, that that's part of it. But I mean, it goes back to um, this theory called atten attention restoration theory. And it's that when you as an individual, as a human being, engage with nature, your natural stress response actually decreases. Um, and it can happen within as quick of interacting with nature for about 20 seconds. Um, the real ideal is if you can interact with nature for about five minutes, um, which is really powerful when you think about it, when clinicians are transitioning from traumatic experiences and then having to move directly to something else, there's, there is no restoration. They don't have time to make it down the hall, around the corner to, to a respite room. I need to start putting those spaces in, integrated into where they're charting the moment they leave a patient space, the moment they leave the operating room. I have goals to get it into the operating room, but there's just some real big requirements there. Erin, <laughs> what's your vision? Um, where would you like to see this 10 years from now, 20 years from now? What would, you, what would the ideal world of the built environment be taking into account um, clinician well-being? I would love to be able to create spaces and to see the design industry really rally around this idea that we could create spaces that leave clinicians better than when they started their shift. Um, the current paradigm really focuses on patient and family-specific spaces receiving priority in square footage um, and sometimes even dollars. Um, but we really need to rebalance that effort. Um, it's not completely taking away from one or the other. It's, it's honestly looking at... Uh, Clinicians is sort of the the way to spread the wealth. Um, if we take care of them, we are doing the truest sense of patient-centered design and patient-centered care, which is what all of us, I think, got into our respective industries to do. Um, you know, bad design is an unfortunate reality, whether it's healthcare or not. Um, 
if I could change it all, I would. Um, but, (laughs) (laughs) but we need to start having those conversations, uh, about, you know, if no one told you to consider the headache that you experience could be because of your built environment, that just perpetuates the cycle that design doesn't affect us in any way. Um, and these are the unintended consequences of a lack of education around the value good design brings to the table. So, you know, if I had, if I got my way about it all is that one, um, design and architecture education will will take another step and start to advance data collection amongst architects and designers, advance research processes. Um, this doesn't need to be this full-blown scientific, uh, you know, peer-reviewed research paper at the end of each design project, but we can make little little strides and little steps um, towards making these spaces better. It's not a, we need to do this wholly across every single project. That's going to take a long time. Um, But we have the means right now to, to start using the existing research. We can commit as a group to more rigorous and consistent tracking before and after occupancy. We really need to get health systems engaged in that and excited about that. Um, and then all agreed to start to reevaluate where those design dollars go and where it's going to make the biggest impact for that health system. You've heard me talk a little bit about these different strategies. Um, unfortunately, there really isn't a complete prescription, but based on those goals that I talked about, the operational strategic and financial goals, of an organization, we can start to hone in on what things are going to make the biggest impact, especially if you're dealing with an existing facility. We can start to assess, okay, here are some of your limitations and and maybe here are some roadblocks that your staff are experiencing from evaluating the space, from talking to them, from, you know, anonymously surveying them because that's really, really important. Um, And then start to test. I mean, some of this could be very iterative. And I think that that's really inspiring. Yeah, I think it's a really, it's a great approach. I'm still trying to get my head around the fact that you've never been asked to design something (laughs) to address burnout. Um, Because I think, you know, just having done my own kitchen, I think I had no idea how inefficient it was, how difficult it was to work in that space until the space was changed. Right. And it was designed for the workflow in a in a more user friendly way, right? And I can only imagine what would happen in healthcare if we did the same thing, right? And I think that's a really key point. I think I should have also added that what we we skirt around the topic of burnout, which I think is also still part of the problem and why we really haven't made the strides that we need to, is because we do we we talk about it in workflow and process improvement, and we talk about it in um, you know boosting patient satisfaction and attracting and retaining talent. But sometimes you got to go a little bit deeper than some of the the more positive things to get to the root cause, which I think is what a lot of what you guys are trying to do, which was, my big moment of, oh my gosh, what am I missing about moral injury in, in this field? And um, I think getting deeper 
really just meant that these hard conversations need to happen. We need to keep asking as designers and architects for the random HR information that people are going to, you know, kind of look at us sideways for. Um, And we need to start talking about burnout in conjunction with patient satisfaction, in conjunction with um, recruiting and retaining talent. Well, Claren, I appreciate you coming here. Um, We've had some great conversations with you over the past year, and I think um, we're excited to keep working on changing things that people don't need to exert any effort to help improve how they work. And so um, we look forward to more conversations in the future. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. And I can't wait to see what we, what we do. Thanks, Claire. So I thought that was a really fascinating conversation with Claire Ann. And I'm so glad that we've had the chance to work with them for the last, what, 15 months now. Um, because it, it's fascinating to see what goes into the process of building the healthcare environment. And in all honesty, I hadn't really thought about how many stakeholders there are. Right. You know, the patients, of course, we all think about, and we think about the clinicians, but there's also all of those other people that make it happen in the hospital. The people who are involved in security, logistics, environmental services, all the um, clinicians who are working in outpatient settings, occupational therapists, respiratory therapists, um, people who make food for us. So it's a, it's a really complicated place and heavily, heavily regulated by rules that are uh, imposed on the way that we build our hospitals and our, our health settings. Yeah, so it's no wonder that when we're trying to build a, a hospital or a healthcare system, um, or even an, even just an outpatient clinic, it's really, it has to be an intentional act to bring those clinicians' needs forward. And it's really refreshing to see that there's a group that's trying to do that. But one of the things that I think um, came up for Claire Ann, and, and we certainly noticed this as we worked uh, more in depth with them, is that there's not a whole lot of hard and fast research that connects the healthcare space and the built environment to the distress that people are feeling using that environment. And so one of the things that we have spent a while working on is trying to sort of look at those linkages and try and uh, match up the things that people are struggling with, with how those interact with the built environment. Yeah. And then once we understand what in the, in the built environment may impact those, those distress symptoms, then we can start to break down those environmental barriers and use the environment to make work easier. Exactly. So um, it'll be interesting to see, especially how this rolls out with what we've learned in the pandemic and how our, how our environments adapted to, to the pandemic stresses or didn't. And perhaps what we've learned from that and what we can do to change going forwards. Yeah, for sure. So our next episode is with Richard Lacquemont. Uh, Richard Lacquemont is the former dean of the School of Strategic Land Power, and he's the current research faculty at the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle. Yeah, and he came to talk with us about his work on the military as a profession and how his work relates to the profession of healthcare. And it, it was a fascinating discussion. We really hope you'll join us. And now, in addition to the upcoming episode, we want to fill you in on some of the, the latest news. Perhaps the most exciting for us is that we're now at nearly a thousand, sorry, nearly four thousand downloads. And so we really want to thank the public defenders who came out in droves and listened to to the uh, to the last episode and all those people that are uh, signing up and having their friends sign up. We really appreciate the support. Yeah, it makes a big difference. 
And we'll be recording another episode of Ask Us Anything in the next few weeks. So send your emails or voice memos to podcast at moralinjury.healthcare. Questions, suggestions, who do you want to hear about would be great. Yeah, if you want to hear from somebody, if there's somebody that uh, you think has something to say, if you have uh, friends who you think would be great on the podcast, send us a message. Let us know. We'd like to hear from you. So thanks for joining us on Moral Matters. And if you want to continue the conversation, you can go to Facebook at Moral Injury of Healthcare, Instagram at Moral Injury, Twitter at W. Dean MD and Simon Talbot MD, and at Fixed Moral Injury. So thanks for rating and reviewing us. Thanks for listening to us. Thanks for getting your friends involved. We're getting a lot of feedback. We really appreciate it. Keep it coming. Send us emails. Uh, we like to hear more. And subscribe to the upcoming episodes. There are some really interesting topics that you probably don't want to miss. In the meantime, be well. Thank you.